morning. Okay, so um, I have the title of our talk today on the board, Be Gone, Old Master. And then it'll be divided, the talk will be divided into three categories, um, which are here. And then this graph just kind of helps us. Um, it's not mine, it's from the book. So I've been teaching my students all about plagiarism. So as I'm writing on the board, I'm like, I can't make you think I you know, did this because I didn't. Um, so it just helps us kind of understand the passage before us. And if you're a visual learner, which I am, that might help you. All right. So for those of you who know me, you know that I am a bit of a coffee addict. And I'm here to tell you today that this wasn't always so. Before there was coffee, there were frappuccinos. <laughs> you see, when I was in high school, I was introduced to this world of the frappuccino, those deliciously addictive, sometimes coffee-flavored, burn-a-hole-through-your-wallet blended drinks. I could easily justify spending the majority of my babysitting funds on one of those every morning on my way to school. They were just so good, so refreshing, so sweet, so comforting, and so energizing all at the same time. My old self is just salivating at the thought of one. I was hooked. Now, don't get me wrong. They had their disadvantages. For one, my digestive tract wasn't a fan. They'd run right out of me just as fast as they went in. And those quick sugar highs would leave me floored by lunchtime. And my bank account, well, that was definitely suffering at the hand of these sugar-packed drinks. But they were just so good. And I even loved how it felt walking to homeroom with one in my hand. I just couldn't stop buying them. Until I entered university and had real life expenses. And I had three part-time jobs that I slaved away at for minimum wage and I wasn't going to use that on a blended drink. And I needed real energy to keep awake after studying all night. And then despite how much I longed for the flavor and the experience of drinking said blended drink, I not only very quickly ran out of money, but my stomach had had enough and was starting to fight me on them. And at about the same time at the, that this was all coming to my realization, my new friends had started telling me about this thing called real coffee, <laughs> that I could drink it black without dairy, and it was only a dollar and from the same coffee shop, but they assured me it was rich in flavor, that it warmed you to the core, and that it held the power to keep you awake for a really long time. <laughs> and my microbiology and pharmacy smart friends claimed it might even have some health benefits. So I took the plunge reluctantly and with great skepticism, and ready to run back to the barista for a frappuccino at the first sign of poison. The first sip was interesting, a bit flavorful and robust, but also a bit like burnt dirt. <laughs> but by the second and third sips, my eyes were opened. I could finally see the light. This strong, hot drink filled the hole that frappuccinos never could. Black coffee warmed my heart, gave my tired brain the buzz it needed, gave my digestive tract a rest, and let my wallet breathe a bit. And not only that, but it opened me to a whole world that I didn't even know existed. A community of coffee connoisseurs who welcomed me in with open arms. A world of professors and retirees who were regulars and like-minded students who came to study in this beautiful coffee shop with fireplaces roaring and chessboards and novels and music and laughter and black coffee. <laughs> And then I discovered that the world of coffee went even deeper and purer and richer. The world of espresso shots and bean roasting. This whole world that I was blind to and reluctant to enter, content to just sit with my diarrhea-inducing fruity drink. <laughs> and I still go back sometimes, thinking it might be nice to enjoy a frappuccino from time to time. 
But then I come home and my stomach regrets it and my wallet regrets it and my husband shakes me and says, no, Sarah, that's not who you are anymore. <laughs> and he turns our coffee grinder on just to remind me of the scent of what is real and pure. <laughs> now, I say all that in jest, of course, <laughs> though the story is quite true. But I say it to give you a lighthearted entry into a heavy lesson. Because sometimes these lighthearted pictures actually help us to better see a deeper reality. Those frappuccinos that look so beautiful and taste so delicious wreaked havoc on my life. And what was truly good in every way didn't appear so at first. It appeared plain and gross and boring. And just like those frappuccinos, sin is deceptive and so are our hearts. They can make God seem restrictive and oppressive while making what breathes death and destruction seem like the pathway to joy. Sin can feel like it will feel good forever and that it will allow me to keep my friends when in reality, sin leaves me with nothing and no one, but God gives me everything. Forgiveness, righteous standing, joy, feasting, true community and lasting friendships. So I want this imagery to help us see that in Romans 6, verses 15 to chapter 7, verses 6 of our passage today, Paul is trying to hit home the true nature of sin, what our lives were really like under its reign, and that it is not our master anymore, and so we must stop returning to it. Paul counters that with a picture of how true life and freedom are counterintuitively found in being slaves to God. So, without further ado, let me read our passage for us this morning. Romans chapter, five, uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, and then 7, verses 1 to 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another, with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and, she married, if, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us new life. We thank you for the joy that is in that, and I ask that you would help me as I teach to speak clearly and slowly and plainly and um, help this text to uh, come alive to us and to understand the death that comes from slavery to sin and the life that comes from slavery to you. Um, So be with us now and give us soft hearts to hear and um, help me as I teach. In your name we pray for your glory. Amen. So up until this point, chapters 1 to 5 of Romans have been hitting home the solution to God's wrath against our rebellion. That is, the concept of justification through faith alone. Not by works, not by our own achievement, but as a gift from God through the blood of his Son. And then last week in chapter 6, we entered a new section. Remember those rhetorical questions and objections that Paul laid out in chapter 3 that I told you Paul would return to and answer in the rest of Romans? Well, that started in chapter 6, verse 1, and Bev got us off to a great start in addressing the first one last week. And for the rest of chapter 6, Paul will continue to answer the same initial question. Does the gospel lead to antinomianism? Bev brought up that word last week. That is, rejecting the law and doing whatever I want because there's grace for it. And Paul addresses this question in all of chapter 6, just from different angles and by using various analogies. And in studying to be a teacher, I had one professor who would always say, to really learn, you must teach the same concept eight different times in eight different ways. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I know the gospel is mind-blowing and it requires the gift of faith. And I know our minds are deceitful and our hearts are rebellious and skeptical. And so I want to address every objection I can think of as fully as possible to help you in your faithful obedience to God. And so he re-asks the same question here in verse 15 as a repetition of verse 1. Verse 1 read, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then verse 15 of chapter 6 says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Can you hear the similarities in those questions? The question of, really, Paul? It sounds like sin is permissible in your gospel. And if this gospel doesn't require or even allow me to achieve my own righteousness, then how can a person actually be good through this gospel? And Paul will answer that beyond just the by no means, but he's going to start with an analogy first. He goes on to say in verses 16 to 17, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And one commentator paraphrased this um, objection in Paul's answer as follows. Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Answer, you must not sin. You are a slave to the master you obey, either sin or righteousness. And so here, Paul chooses to use an analogy from the Greco-Roman world at that time to help the reader understand the role of law and grace in the Christian life, the practice of indentured servanthood, or slavery. And trust me, it's a better analogy than coffee. 
At that time in history, people could volunteer themselves as indentured servants. And they usually did this because they had a debt they needed to pay off. And at that time, debt was incurred not because you spent beyond your means, there were no credit cards, but it was usually because of an unexpected downturn of events. Your crops didn't come in, a member of your family became horribly ill, preventing them from working. There was a real reason, and it was a sorrowful reason. And so they worked for their master for a set number of years to pay off that debt. And what Paul is painting for us here, I mean, he says that he's speaking to us, there's natural limitations, he's speaking to us. So this analogy isn't perfect, but it's going to help us here. And he's telling us the story of one slave and two masters. He says that there was once a slave who had a heavy debt. And in order to relieve the weight of it, he became a slave. But his first master was cruel and tyrannical, and he was never pleased with the slave, always demanding more and never satisfied. This harsh master was deceptive and out for blood and was never actually planning to free the debts of this slave because he was instead planning to kill the slave through back-breaking labor. Then, one day, the slave looked up and standing before him was a strong and fierce man with gentle and kind <coughs> eyes. He offered to pay the slave's debt in exchange for loyalty and obedience. He said the slave could be free if he followed him. And so the slave went, and following this new master made him noble and brave. And his old heart, which had been beaten down by the old master, was made new. It was refreshed and healed and strengthened. And this gave the slave's heart a deep joy in following and obeying this new master, who always took care of him and always provided for his every need. This is what Paul is painting for us. The reality of our past a life that was in bondage as slaves to sin, deceived by a beautiful exterior to the depths of rot and decay that were drowning our souls. And Paul is showing us just this, that slavery to sin equals death and decay, but slavery to God equals freedom and feasting. And so in Christ, why would we ever return to our old master? First, I want to walk us through point one, the slavery to sin. Slavery to sin is a cruel master who still seeks to destroy us. That's why Paul is talking about it again. Even as we stand behind our new master, slavery to sin wants us back. Our old master wants us back. And in this passage, chapter 6, verses 15 to 7, 6, one of the most striking descriptions for me as I read and reread this passage was how Paul points to our role in slavery to sin. He says several times and in a number of ways, we presented ourselves to sin as our master. We presented ourselves as obedient slaves to sin. And then Paul again repeats another concept. Sin is lawlessness and lawlessness breeds lawlessness. And a third concept that is repeated and used as a contrast here is fruit. What fruit were you getting from those things you once enjoyed? Death. These three concepts, we presented ourselves to sin, lawlessness breeds lawlessness, and the fruit we enjoyed that brought death. This all reminded me of a story found in Genesis 3. A good God gave one restrictive rule, only one. Don't eat this one fruit. But the fruit was beautiful. And this man and this woman just had to have it. So they presented themselves to sin, 
They ate the fruit. And that sin led to the sin of covering up and the sin of justifying. And what they thought was innocent and beautiful and good bred death and decay for all of us. This is where chapter 7, verse 5 comes in. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. See, the law in itself isn't bad. But paired with sinful humanity, the law both condemns and leads us to sin even more, Paul says. Our deceitful hearts, they hear one rule, don't eat the fruit. But the heart says, but it's beautiful. And so I take it. And then it gets worse. We don't ever just sin once. No, Paul says lawlessness breeds even more lawlessness. One lie leads to a second lie to cover up the first lie, which then leads to the sin of justifying myself in those first and second lies as being reasonable and necessary actions to protect or to blame someone. And those lies inevitably lead to broken relationships, which then lead to even more sin within those broken relationships. It's a vicious cycle. And Paul wants to remind us that sin is an ugly taskmaster. Sin is a trap that draws you in. It's like an addict. You can't ever just do it once. You have to do it again and again because sin will never be satisfied. We like to think that sin is controllable, that it's tame, that we can domesticate it, but it's not. We like to think we can contain it and keep it hidden and manicured in its cage, like a pet that we train. But that's exactly how sin wants you to feel toward it. But it's deceptive. It wants you to think that you're controlling it because in reality, it is a poison that's going to slowly eat you away. It is a master. It is not a slave. You are the slave. Who will you obey? There's actually a Netflix movie that portrays this path of slavery to sin quite vividly. And I want to paint that for us a bit. In the movie, there is a man who is mesmerized and overwhelmed by the beauty of a woman. Rather than moving toward her in a pure pursuit, he allows the hidden sin of lust to rule over him. His mind and imagination run with thoughts and desires for her. This now imaginary creation of a woman draws him deeper and deeper in. Sin, wrapped in a beautiful face and beautiful clothes and an alluring presence, draws him into the waters. In one scene, the man dreamt of himself swimming in a pool with this beautiful figment of his imagination. She wrapped her body around him, and for a split second, her beautiful face suddenly revealed itself for what it was, a rotted corpse being devoured by maggots. The man, jolted, horrified, disgusted, flailing to get away, couldn't because her arms were pulling him down. And she was pulling him under the water, drowning, choking, losing breath, losing life, being killed what appeared be by but what appeared beautiful, by what he knew he couldn't have but just had to have. The whole time it was a rotting corpse with maggots seeking to devour him and bring him to the same decay. This is sin. It is a cruel and harsh master, and it is a slavery that cannot be escaped on our own. It is deceptive, and it is a liar. No matter what promises sin makes to us, no matter how beautiful it seems, no matter how much we think it will give us freedom and happiness, it will always and only lead us directly to death and decay. But thanks be to God, Paul says in verse 17, 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become uh, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Because we have been justified by faith only from God, our just judge is also our merciful and gracious new master. Our new master gave us his son to absorb our penalty, to take our debt. And in place of our sinful disobedience to the law, Christ allows us to stand in his righteous obedience to the law. We are now righteous sons, not because we follow the law, we don't, but because Christ perfectly (coughs) followed the law and we have been made pure by his blood. We are righteous because he is righteous. And notice what verse 17 says. We have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. We have heard the truth. We know the truthful teaching of God, and it has opened our eyes. And because of Christ, we can obey it, and we can obey it from the heart. This isn't begrudging rule following. This isn't fear-driven or self-glorifying rule following. This is obedience to God's word from the heart, because we love God. We love our new master, because he loved us first. And so we can obey him with our hearts. It's like the difference between forcing obedience from our children through threats, clean your room or I'll... And then they either angrily stomp to their room, glaring at you in disgust as they go, or they fearfully race to their room to clean for fear of the wrath of mom. That's not what Paul's getting at here. He's He's painting the sort of obedience that comes from a happy heart. The clean your room, please, that's met with an okay, not because there's a threat, not that it even happens, wait, let me finish, not that it even happens in any of our homes, (laughs) and because it's not a threat, and it won't make them look good or give them a star, they do it, if ever, likely not, because they love you, and they know that you love them, and they, they know that you have their good in mind. And likely this cheerful obedience never actually happens in our home. <laughs> not, definitely not in mine. But you get what I'm saying. And what Paul is trying to say. Paul is, says that because we have been freed from bondage to death and decay and have been given the pure and good and life-giving law of God, we are pleased to follow it. Not as a means to salvation. It does not save. We have already been saved. We obey because we know our master loves us and is out for our good. He has wiped away our debt and we love him and so we want to please him. And unlike sin, we can actually and do actually please God. And that's freeing. And presenting ourselves to righteousness to God as our new master, we are set free from sin. Verses 22 and 23 tell us, and now the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Slavery to God equals freedom and feasting. We are not bound for death and decay. (coughs) Praise the Lord. But it's even better than that. It's not just freedom. Not only do we get freedom, we also get feasting. And that's where chapter 7 enters in and it introduces to us a new analogy, that of marriage. Now you may be asking, why does Paul pick marriage as his second analogy? 
There are a few reasons, and professor scholar Michael Kruger gives us a few answers. For one, marriage is more than just legal, it's relational. Our relationship to our first husband was relational and legally binding, but he died. So the relationship, though the memory of it and the effects of it are still present, is over and it's no longer legally binding. And now that I am free from that marriage, I am legally able to marry again. And so I do. And this new marriage is similarly both relational and legally binding. And Paul says our first husband, the law, was a cruel and tyrannical spouse. Not tyrannical because the law is sinful or bad, but because I am sinful and bad and the law serves to point that out and to condemn me for the purpose of driving me to Christ. But without Christ as my new husband, I just sit condemned and ruled over by my first husband with my insufficiency and inadequacies and failure and death, death shoved in my face all day long. And I can never work to please him. And that is not a marriage that any of us want. But Paul says you have died to that marriage and you are now married to another. And this is the second reason why Paul uses the marriage analogy. Because it's an analogy that God himself uses throughout the entire Bible. He is the husband who pursues his adulterous bride in the Old Testament, condemned by sin and always returning to sin. He purifies her and makes her beautiful as only he can, again and again. And then, in Revelation 19, we get this picture of the great marriage supper of the Lamb, where we, the church, the bride of Christ, are made bright and pure through the blood of Christ our husband, and we're invited to feast forever at the great wedding celebration. That's incredible. To feast forever, to have a wedding celebration that never ends. That is our eternal destiny. That is our hope. Friends, slavery to God leads to freedom and to feasting forever. And so point three, why would we ever go back? Why would we ever return to that cruel taskmaster? Why would we ever return to what we know we'll be ashamed of and to what we know will lead to our death? And yet we do, don't we? And sometimes we return to it daily. To illustrate this point of how and why our flesh pulls us to return to our old master and how and why we must resist, I want to share another story. So Paul shares a few stories in this passage to help us grasp this difficult concept. So I found it helpful for myself to, to walk through some stories. In the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, there's a novel entitled The Silver Chair. And in that story, the prince of Narnia is found searching every night for an evil snake who killed his mother. But in those searches, the prince instead finds himself enticed into the underworld by the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. This woman, the queen of the underworld, we discover is actually the very evil snake that killed the prince's mother. And she is now seeking to delude the prince's mind and use him to destroy the very people of Narnia. So this evil queen then puts a spell on the prince, one that makes him forget who he really is, one that makes him think the queen is good and beautiful and merciful and that she loves him and is going to make him king over many lands and give him her hand in marriage if he remains loyal to her. We eventually discover that it's a silver chair that the prince is strapped to every night that places him under this awful spell. 
And so when Aslan sends a team of three children to rescue the prince, the prince discovers it's the chair that is binding him. And so he immediately destroys the chair and then goes to confront the queen. But like sin, she is cunning and far more powerful than we realize. She quietly walks into the room with the prince and the children of Aslan, and she throws a powder onto the fire in the fireplace, which releases a sweet and drowsy smell. She then takes out a musical instrument like a mandolin and begins to play. And the story reads, the less you noticed it, the music, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This also made it hard to think. After she had thrummed for a time and the sweet smell was now strong, she began speaking in a sweet, quiet voice. Narnia, she said. Narnia? I have, often, I have often heard you utter that name in your ravings. Dear Prince, you must be very sick. There is no land called Narnia. No, I suppose that other world must all be a dream. Yes, it is a dream, said the queen, always thrumming. Yes, all a dream. There never was such a world. No, there never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the queen. There never was any world but yours, said they. There never was a son, said the queen. No, there never was a son, said the prince and the children. For the last few minutes, Jill had been feeling that there, must, there was something she must remember at all costs. And now she did, but it was dreadfully hard to say it. She felt as if huge weights were laid upon her lips. At last, with an effort that seemed to take all the good out of her, she said, there's Aslan. Aslan, said the queen, quickening ever so slightly the pace of her thrumming. What a pretty name. Come, all of you, put away these childish tricks. I have work for you all in the real world. There is no Narnia, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And now to bed all, and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first, to bed to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows. Do you see what sin does? It's insidious. It lures us in with delusions of beauty and promises of greatness, all the while working to erase any memory we have of what is true and all with a smile on its hideous face. It lures us in to obey its passions, thus enslaving us back again, Paul says. It's so easy and it can happen so fast. But if we return and we let unrepentant sin go unchecked, our enslavement back to sin will be sure and our death will be imminent. Sin is not a pet, it has no benefits and it will devour you. So as the children did in the story, you must stamp out the old master's enchanting flame with your bare foot if necessary and tell her to be quiet with a sword at the ready and return to your true master. I want us all to stop right now so I can stop crying <laughs> and take a moment to think about what enchanting sin lures you in with its sweet smell and dreamy music. What do you think will, you will gain with it? And where is it promising to take you? Is it promising to hide you well enough so you can still follow your new master? Think about it. I want to tell you, and Paul wants to tell you, that it is a liar. 
So stomp it out with your bare feet if necessary and return to God. Like Aslan, our God is good and his law is good and obedience to his word will bring you freedom now and feasting in the world to come. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to pray for us, and then I want us to work through a few questions in our workbooks before our time is up. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us, sinful humanity, a free gift, and the free gift that sets us free. So please, God, give us courage and give us strength and give us a love for you that gives us the ability to stomp out the fire of that enchantress, that we would say no to sin, that we would tell it to be quiet, that we would walk away and turn and follow you every time. Help us, Lord. We need you and we need your spirit to fill us with obedient hearts that follow you from the heart. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would teach us how to love you better. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have your books, and if you don't, just borrow one from someone next to you. But go to page 96. Um, and in this workbook, on the sides, the, for thought and discussion, those I've found have always been quite good. Um, so there are two questions there that I want you to talk about at your tables. The first is, why does Paul speak of slavery to obedience in 6.16, righteousness in 6.18-19, and God in 22? How are these ideas related? That's the first question. And then the second question, yeah, page 96. Mm-hmm. The second question is, what personal, so I'm adding the word personal there. I want you to get personal in your groups, not just make this theoretical. <clears throat> what personal evidence can you offer to support or refute Paul's claim in 621 that sin has no benefits which outweigh its costs? So personal evidence. And then the third question I want you to talk about is question 13 on page 100, so at the end of the chapter. What one truth from this passage do you most want to remember and apply? So work through those at your tables, and then you can all go home. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you.